0: The businesses and business owners that have access to capital are ones that bankers find familiar, meaning like not people of color or women entrepreneurs. Banks want to give loans to people that already have existing businesses. And and the people that have existing businesses are by and large, like white wealthy people. Even if you discount the really large difference in starting point, which is hard to discount, but even if you discount that, and and you saw, for example, my mom, who was a woman of color, immigrant, applying for a loan, or you had someone who had the exact same assets, but the underwriter knew that person from their country club, which, of course, my mom was not a member of a country club. Even if that person had the same qualifications and same assets, that person is much more likely to get a loan. This is The Personal Finance
1: Show. Hi, I'm Beau Humphreys, and this is The Personal Finance Show. Nico Barroweed wants you to know that personal finance is very different for immigrants. And it's even harder if you're an immigrant who is also a woman or person of color like Nico's mom. Nico came to the U.S. from the Philippines with his parents when he was very young. Despite the fact that they were both medical residents and eventually doctors in the U.S., Nico's parents faced a lot of financial discrimination because of their lack of credit history. And the worst part about this is that it isn't that they lack credit history entirely. It's that they didn't have credit history in the U.S., They had student loans and credit cards in the Philippines before they left. So why wouldn't that credit history count in the U.S.? Good question. It's because the credit evaluation process is broken. For as long as financial institutions have been around, no one has ever thought to connect the global credit reporting systems in a meaningful way. And all of the local systems are different, so good credit in the Philippines means nothing to U.S. banks. They just don't trust it. So when the three founders of a new company called Nova Credit were looking for their first employee, Nico jumped at the opportunity to help fix this broken system. Nico is now working with banks and credit bureaus around the world, connecting them one at a time so that one day, immigrants with good credit will be able to bring that credit to the U.S. and Canada and not have to go through what his parents went through. I'm very happy that Nico is doing this and that he joined me from the San Francisco Bay area. Tell his family's personal finance story.
0: My earliest memory with money is very much tied to my parents' immigration story in the U.S. And, and my upbringing as a as a son of immigrants. So when I when I grew up, because my parents sacrificed a lot of their wealth at the time to bring. Myself and my siblings over to the United States. They were very, very strict with money to the point where um, I, I always grew up thinking that we were poor, and it was it was not until you know I went to college when I realized, oh wait, my parents are both medical professionals; like they're fine. Okay, and yeah, and um, in particular with credit, I, I was always sort of brought up thinking that any sort of debt is bad. Obviously, now there are nuances to that story, but like. From, from very early, my parents hammered in home that, you know, credit card debt is bad, debt for personal expenses is bad. And so that was sort of, what stuck with me when I graduated from college and got my first credit card and I was like, oh no, I'm doing something bad. And so I've had to, I've had to evolve a bit from, from that view.
1: That's not a bad way to start. You know, it's better, it's better than starting from the other extreme. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So start from there and then, oh, some credit is good. That's totally fine. (laughs) Right. You're not going to get in much trouble. You might've missed an opportunity to spend something. That's the only risk of this upbringing. Yeah, that's the only downside.
0: Well, I, I think the other thing which I'll probably modify as I, you know, have children and and have them entering adulthood is is that the people I saw that had the easiest access to credit after college and in their first year were, were those whose parents had opened up credit cards for them when they were, you know, in high school or college and they already had a credit history whereas like I face the same issue that a lot of immigrants do going to the US and Canada, which is that like because I was new to credit, I could only get a small secured card. Interesting. Um, That's a very interesting
1: uh, perspective because you, like, so uh, wait, you were born here or no? Uh, Sorry. I say here. I'm not even in the States.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I I was born in the Philippines. Yeah. um, But but you came over early. uh, Yeah. But I I grew up like in the States.
1: Yeah. So where where you had the opportunity to build up credit, but because your parents are so uh, debt averse, You, you didn't build up credit when you had the opportunity. I didn't even think of that as uh, the negative.
0: Yeah, that's right. And so I I had to build it up from scratch when I was a professional that like wanted to buy a couch and could only do so with cash instead of with a credit card.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's that's crazy. So you got like that. That's good education from your parents. Like that. There's nothing wrong with what they did, but what they missed was the opportunity to help you integrate with the credit system.
0: That's right. And and when I say that, you know, there's nuances to my parents' point, I I totally agree with you that like generally I think it's a if you're gonna err on one side, it's much better to err on the side of debt being bad. Mm -hmm. But you know, as you and your listeners all know, having a good credit history, like having a credit card that you pay on time is better than having no credit card in many ways. And so that's the nuance that I had to learn entering into the world as my own.
1: Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about, uh, so your parents are medical professionals. What what did they do?
0: Yeah. They were both educated in medical school in the Philippines and then came over here to sort of do their residency equivalent in in the U S
1: Wow. So they're, they're both doctors.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: So, so you had doctors as parents, and you thought you thought that like you were poor pretty much,
0: yeah, because like. So I, I think a few things. One is that my siblings and I, from growing up, were all in pretty good private schools. And so tens of thousands of dollars of my parents' like income went to their children's education, which was obviously a huge sacrifice for them. Sure. But because from their perspective, it, it, if they had calculated that in pesos, regardless of however much they earned in US dollars, they like could not imagine their parents spending that much in Philippine pesos. And so they always thought that they like, were poor and like could never afford anything, but I, I don't think that that was totally true. But but it very much made its impression on me. Where you know I I am not at all a profligate spender.
1: <laughs> okay, I I see. So that the the schooling was so expensive that they they felt poor. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that that's a that's interesting. I mean, I'm sure a lot of parents today would uh, would agree the sacrifices made to put their kids. In private school it's very expensive
0: yeah totally and and you know like like because we went to private school since we were very young as they were growing their income they always had that fixed expense um regardless of of how much they earned
1: okay so what was the what was the credit experience that for them then coming across so they they had to pay for everything with cash whether they want to or not
0: Right. Yeah, that's right. Because despite having good credit history in the Philippines, you know, my parents both had credit cards and student loans and stuff that they paid on time um, mm-hmm. in the Philippines. When when they moved to the US, they needed to like get a car and they needed to buy furniture and, and all the stuff that like immigrants need to get is expensive when they first moved to a country. And so when my parents tried to get a credit card, they had to get like me when I first went into the working world, they could only get a $500 secured credit card, which of course was not enough money to pay for like household expenses. And, and they couldn't get an auto loan for their car, which was problematic because they needed the car to go to residency. And so I, th- those struggles that they faced really, really stuck with me and really influenced sort of what I've been deciding to do with my life.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, on, on top of that, uh, just so if people don't know what a secured card is, of course, you have to give them exactly amount, the amount of money that the, the credit limit is and they probably put it in some kind of investment, safe investment for you, hopefully. And then whenever you, if ever you decide to cancel that card, then you get the money back. And it's really just for convenience purposes only to be able to use a credit card in a situation where, like you say, renting a car or a hotel where you need one.
0: Yeah, that's right. And, And in fact, the secured card that I think as a starter card for a lot of pe- people after college, and and for a lot of immigrants, is is kind of a silly concept where you pay five hundred dollars into some account that you can't touch, um, and then you get a credit card with a five hundred dollar limit, right? So you know you don't like you're not you're not actually leveraging yourself in any way. You're not, just no. saying yeah, like like you can have five hundred dollars, and I will spend five hundred dollars. But what it really does is it allows you to build a credit history, which is much more important than than using that $500 in cash.
1: Yeah, I think people discount, a lot of people, not a lot of people, but there's some people that I've known who just prefer to live on cash and uh, society does not favor them.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, if, if you live on cash, then you have to buy your house in cash, which in a city like Toronto or San Francisco is, yeah. is several hundred thousand, if not millions of dollars.
1: <laughs> so your parents, they eventually then had to buy a house. Did, did they then wait until they had a decent credit, or was were there uh, limitations there for them?
0: Yeah, that's right. They, I mean, I remember all of us back then, a family of five, all living in a small apartment for two reasons. One is that one way credit is used is with landlords, and so when my parents as tenants showed their Landlord, basically, they didn't have any credit history. The landlord was like, "Okay, pay like nine months of deposit," which was again another Whoa. enormous cash outlay for immigrants. So um, not which, even
1: not even the mortgage problem yet. We're we're just having a, a rental deposit problem.
0: That's right, and wow. so you know, one of the reasons why we had to be in such a small apartment was because larger apartments would require larger deposits, and so like I remember all of us cramming into <laughs> a small apartment from the beginning. The other reason why we had to be in such a small apartment was the fact that of course they couldn't get a mortgage without having credit history. And so they had to build that up before we could actually buy a house in the US.
1: Yeah. Do you remember how long that was or, or did they buy a house?
0: I, I want to say it was like four years. So like they had to save up for a down payment. But even after that, after they saved up for the down payment they still needed to have like a really good credit history because you know as you know yeah. and as your listeners might know a mortgage usually is like 15 to 30 years and and if you have a bad like interest rate then that follows you for 30 years
1: man so yeah you don't even you just ha- you have to save the money so they're working their tails off i mean i guess they they be in residency for a little bit before they you got uh, real doctor money, and <laughs> right. so it probably took a while. But and and there were you said five, so three three kids. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, are you the youngest? I'm the oldest. You're the oldest. Okay, so you. Used to, yeah. And uh, you don't seem that old at all. So <laughs> how, is everybody uh, what in their twenties now or?
0: Yeah, that's right. So like my youngest sibling um, from then, my, my parents had another sibling uh, when I was in high school, but my youngest sibling from then just graduated from college a couple of years ago. And so now it's funny, actually, because now that we're all adults, we're all realizing um, how uh, stingy we've all become as a result <laughs> of <laughs> our very immigrant parents upbringing.
1: <laughs> Again, not a bad problem. Something you, right. you can definitely work with <laughs> as opposed to the opposite. Right. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about you before we we get into the business, which is all still very relevant to this story. So you went to school. Then did you work? Did you work at all? Did you work while you were growing up?
0: I did not work growing up. My parents again, being the immigrants that they were, want, I actually asked them if I could work and they were like, no, you have to focus on school and get straight A's. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so they made sure um, you went to private school and and focused on that because they were paying a, lo- a lot for that's it. That's right. Yeah. They, were,
0: they were like, we're not going to pay for you to go to private school and then you to flunk out. Yeah. Um, Good point. So I, I did start working in college to help defray the costs of, of tuition um, for my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had, you know, odd jobs here and there. And like, like libraries and laboratories. And then I went to graduate school. And then my first job was as a management consultant after graduate school. What did you take in school? I studied economics and then public policy.
1: Nice, and uh, the combination of those, what did it prepare you for? Like, what was there a specific job at the end of this uh, tunnel?
0: Yeah, I, I think for me, I, as a good immigrant son, I I actually went to college thinking I was going to be a doctor, um, okay, okay. and then realized that I didn't want to. Obviously, no offense to doctors, but I didn't want to spend my college career like in a laboratory, and and found people really interesting, and so. I studied economics because I I found the social sciences and the study of people's behaviors in mathematical form really really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And then I I went on to policy uh, graduate school for the same reason, which was that I, I really wanted to, you know, improve people's lives in the world with with that knowledge and so ultimately I knew that I wanted to have a career that spanned both the public and private sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, up until now I I've, I've just been in the private sector but but I'm looking forward to going back into government and affecting sort of that public policy change that I went to school for.
1: Oh nice. So so that's uh your long-term plan then is to get into what politics of some kind?
0: Yeah, I think I think government or policy would be really interesting.
1: Yeah, that's cool. Okay, so you you're set up and you said you had a consulting job when you got out?
0: That's right. I, I worked um, after college as a management consultant and worked there for a couple of years um, before I decided I wanted to. So my, my passion in college had always been climate change and and renewable energy. And so I left the consulting job to go to a solar energy company uh, where I was uh, financing solar assets.
1: OK, changing the world. So uh, what year was this?
0: This was in 2014.
1: 2014. So yep. uh, how how long did you stay uh, in the solar
0: company? I stayed there for 2 years. It went bankrupt, which also taught me a lot about personal finance.
1: Wow, okay. So it was uh, a I, bit of a startup.
0: It it actually wasn't. So when I oh. went, I it was it was the largest solar energy company in the world. Fascinating. Um, okay. Yeah. And what happened was that it was called Sun Edison. Um, Sun Edison had ambitions to, to grow really quickly um, mm. and was rewarded by Wall Street for their ambition of growth. But the way they grew quickly was through a lot of debt-fueled acquisitions. Uh, um, okay. And obviously when um, sort of, the The bells stopped ringing, and everyone stopped celebrating se and what what was left was was a company full of debt um and ultimately they couldn't service their debt obligations and so um went bankrupt as a result of growing too quickly via debt
1: oh wow so that's a i guess that's a lesson for all of us right exactly <laughs> don't <laughs> like <that. laughs> I guess what what would have how could they have done it differently uh, just as just as a case study here like it would they would have done it in a longer period and not just yeah I think
0: that's right I think I think more measured growth um, as opposed to growing really fast and in particular yeah they were so like I I was there for a year and a half and while I was while I was there I think the market cap like doubled or tripled in the same time as a result of ongoing acquisitions. And then, but, but if, if they had decided to acquire companies more prudently, meaning acquire companies when they actually had the cash to do so, rather than having to raise the debt, then it would have made it much less risky.
1: So let's focus back on you then. Were you making your first money then of your own doing this? I was making
0: my first money in consulting. Um,
1: How long was that, by the way? How long did you do that? That
0: was for a couple of years. The thing about consulting was, uh, I think when people right after college go to consulting, they both earn money, but then have a lot of expenses that they can charge back to the company. And so for me, like those expenses and in terms of flights and hotels... were much larger than the the money I was making and so um it, it it was actually very difficult for me to see how much money I had in my bank account at any point because you know I would have like $5,000 in my bank and then like like $15,000 in expenses and I would never know like like once I file all my expenses and get my reimbursements like how much money do I actually have and and that was like if I could go back and do it again like that's something that I would keep closer t- track of
1: yeah you're flowing it's all flowing in and out so you yeah, maybe keep that separately or use a, I don't know, a separate card or account for that. Yeah. So you could yeah. uh, see. So, so I suppose that this time then you're not investing any money or, or, uh, like, do you know about investing or anything? Or do you know about what to do? Your parents taught you how to be frugal.
0: Yeah, no, they did not teach me about investments. And so it wasn't until I worked at the solar energy company that, um, I knew, like and and when I didn't have such large fluctuations in cash, yeah, that I was like, oh, like what should I do with my extra cash? Like it's probably not good to hold it in cash. And so <laughs> it wasn't until the my second job that, that I did that.
1: Yeah. So uh, so you're working at Solar, uh, you're making decent money, uh, and so now you're able to maybe put some of it away.
0: That's right. So um, I was I was always one one of the things that I knew was like always. I mean, this is more for the U.S. than in Canada. Um, but I was like always contribute to my 401k, at least to where the company matches. Yeah.
1: We have um, a similar story like, here. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like free money. Um, exactly. so I always did that. Um, so I always had money in my 401ks and then, um, extra cash, I would just put towards, you know, the, the robo advisors, like Betterment and Wealthfront.
1: Yeah. So you, the, you know, you're young enough that that was around when you're, when you were learning about all of this. Um, right. so yeah, that's, so you got, you you got that taken care of, so Robos you just made it easy for yourself, and now you're able to focus on the other things that you want to do. Maybe in the financial space, uh, is it soon after that you start having this idea of of uh, of going out on your own, or how long did that take?
0: Um, yeah. So so I. I went from the solar energy company to another company, actually, which um, was a really, really interesting company. So it was a bank, a social impact bank called okay. Beneficial State Bank um, here in Oakland, California. And um, it was founded by a couple of philanthropists that had the idea that the banking sector should be um, not extractive. Meaning that like, when you deposit money in a bank, obviously the bank goes around and makes loans with that money. Um, And sometimes what happens is you deposit money in a bank and then the bank like makes loans to oil companies or to like cigarette companies. And so what the bank's innovation was um, to the extent that you care what your deposits are doing, you should care like what the loans are that the bank are making. And so we as a bank that cares about social impact are going to make loans to renewable energy, which was why I was interested in it, but also like nonprofits, women and minority owned businesses, et cetera. And so um, I worked there for, um, uh, almost a year, uh, learning about the banking world and how finance can really intersect with, with social good.
1: Yeah. I love this. This is great. Like, so this is, how many of these are in the States? Is it a, a unique thing?
0: Um, there are, there are a few, um, they, they have a, a name called CDFI, which is community development financial institution or something like that. Okay. Um, uh, and what they do is, is they are banks that want to use their lending portfolio to actually do good in the world. Yeah. Um, and so they say, you should deposit your money with us because we're going to, we're going to, you know, actually try to improve the world.
1: And what was the name of it again?
0: Beneficial State Bank.
1: Great. And, and so can people from anywhere in the States sign up for this bank?
0: Yeah, totally. So this bank accepts deposits from everywhere, but they only have branches on the West Coast. So in California, Oregon, and and Washington. Um, So likely it's not going to be helpful if a New Yorker tries to open an account with this bank because there's no branches in New York. But there are, you can find CDFIs that are um, anywhere uh, in the US and one that will likely have a branch close to you.
1: That's great and i now i'm thinking I'm wondering if we have anything like that in canada but i I think that's a it's a fantastic thing so yeah what what would you say Your like did your mind sort of expand as to what can be done in the financial space
0: yeah totally i mean um i i think i think even up until until this job i i still was under the impression that like debt is like pretty bad you know okay yeah um <laughs> but what this bank showed me was that, uh, you know, there are some really interesting entrepreneurs and causes that just cannot expand because they can't get the capital to expand. And it's only a very small fraction of companies that can raise, you know, VC, venture capital money. Yeah. Um, all other types of companies have to get bank loans. And so when I realized that shortage of capital need, um, I realized actually that the good that loans can do in the world.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Like, I'm I'm really debt averse, and and I don't recommend consumer debt to individuals. But I actually have a completely separate opinion about borrowing or lending to companies for growth. I I think that it's the only way. It's the only way to grow. Of course, not in an accelerated way like your solar company did. Let's <laughs> let's put right. the qualifier there right uh, but within reason right i mean especially you know maybe you got to build up a little bit but if you want to get to the next level sometimes you need an influx of capital and it's not always going to be able to come from you know a rich family member or you happen to know a vc or be in the right business to get uh, venture capitalists or angel investors
0: yeah that's right and and i think um unfortunately um the the businesses and business owners that have access to capital are ones that bankers find familiar, meaning like not people of color or women entrepreneurs. And so what we found was that there, there is a dearth of entrepreneurs from these communities. And so what we tried to do was give them access to responsible capital uh, so that they could go and employ a ton of people and, and show others that like women and minorities can be great business owners. Um, and so that was the, the gap that we were trying to fill in some ways.
1: That's, that's a, a really good point to make. And I don't know if everybody even realizes that do you have Did you have direct um uh, experience with any do you have like uh any examples uh from when you were working at the bank where you saw uh, this or the stories from from the banking industry
0: yeah i mean there were there were a lot of folks in the local community that tried to go to you know they had nonprofits or they had small businesses and and they tried to go to other typical sources of capital mm hmm and they couldn't. I mean, a, a good example is my parents. So my sure, my, yeah. my mom started a clinic for those in car accidents because she saw that those people, it, it was often expensive for them to get adequate medical care. And she actually did try to get a small business loan in, in the U.S. and was repeatedly rejected. And so she actually had to grow her, her business without any access to bank loans.
1: And th- this is a doctor. Um, yeah. <laughs> It just happens to be a a woman and an immigrant. Yeah. But uh, I mean, I don't see like on paper, how would she look any different than anybody else? Right.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and, and I think, you know, I, I don't, I hesitate to say like, Oh, the, the bankers that were looking at her file were you know, racist or, or sexist, but but I think that there are systematic biases that, that make sure. it harder for generally women and minority business owners to grow their business as fast as everyone else.
1: And it's also possible that they were actually racist as well, the people, <laughs> uh, but, right. but we can't prove that. But yes, no, you're right. The, like it could be a combination of all of that, which makes it even worse, right? That the people just happen to be racist. And what, what like, do you have any more, uh, info about like why, why that is, is it just the, the system was built up that way and it's still like that. And it's, there's no like clear reason. Like somebody looks at a, a piece of paper and it says, you know, a Filipino woman, uh, even though she's a, an MD, like somehow they just think more risk.
0: Yeah, I think, I think it's that. I think that they, they see more risk. I think, I think one part is that, um, I mean, the root causes go back like a lot, but, but one of them is that yeah. it's hard for people to start their first business. So banks want to give loans to people that already have existing businesses, and, and the people that have existing businesses are, by and large, like white, wealthy people. Of
1: course, yeah.
0: And so like th- the effects just compound where what you see is a widening gap in wealth outcomes between the white landed class and, and everyone else.
1: Yeah, so this is the wealth gap, right? Right. And yeah, like the, the gender gap and the wealth gap are, are the, the big things that hopefully are getting smaller these days because we're it's it's like top of mind, I think, in conversation for most people. But it's it would take what somebody said, something like it'd take 200 years to close the close the wealth gap because of, of the runway that the, the white uh, people had from from hundreds of years ago. Right.
0: Yeah. And and I think also, like, even if you discount the really large difference in starting point, which is hard to discount, but even if you discount that, and, and you saw, for example, my mom, who was a woman of color, immigrant, applying for a loan, or you had someone who had the exact same assets, but the underwriter knew that person from their country club, which, of course, my mom was not a member of a country club. Mm. Um, even if that person had the same qualifications and same assets, that person is much more likely to get a loan. And so uh, I think that there is some truth to what you just said, which is like, you look at someone who has a funny name um, and who may or may not have assets, and for some subconscious reason, you you likely think that they like are higher risk when it comes to paying back the loan.
1: Do you think uh, that like AI and other things like this uh, will help take away these human biases?
0: Um, I think there can be two outcomes. One is that, yeah, it would be amazing for AI to take away these, these human biases because yeah. they are blind to the name of the person right? or to the immigration status. But I think... The opposite can be true as well, which is that the quality of the outputs in an AI model are only as good as the quality of the inputs. Um, And to the extent that the quality of the inputs is sexist or racist, because they only have training data from sexist or racist um, underwriting outcomes, then AI is not going to change that. That's terrible. And so, you know, there are a lot of like fintech companies in San Francisco that are using AI Underwriting models, but that are actually having uh, discriminatory outcomes um, because of because of this issue, and so oh the regulators God. are very careful to note not just what the model is, like the model itself, the variables, the mechanics of it might might not be racist. I mean, it's, it's very obviously not racist, but then but then what's important is is the outputs of that model.
1: I never thought that we could have racist and sexist robots. This is this is like this <laughs> right. is like the, the worst. But what you're saying makes so much sense it, it it's only as good as the quality of the programming
0: yeah and and you know it's like if, for example, like you had like a hundred Google searches that all were where everyone searched because like people are generally like have some subconscious bias like women um and and the next search term is like you know housewife right so Google sees all of the data coming in as women housewife even if Google's like equations are not racist. What could come out is a racist outcome, or sorry, a sexist outcome, because they only had sexist inputs. And so I think that's the danger with like AI and machine learning. Oh
1: wow, yeah, because they learn from the society at large right now. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Well, okay. So we still have a long way to go there. <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> right. we could try keep trying to theorize, and you know, maybe hopefully you will be one of the ones the you know, help, <laughs> help fix this broken, broken system. But right. you obviously you were you're, you are you wide awake then after being in this, in this banking social impact banking environment. And, uh, where did you go next?
0: Next, I went to the startup that I'm currently at. So I was the first business uh, employee at at the startup called Nova Credit. Yes, Um, And I was attracted to this company because of exactly the issues that we've been talking about, which is that like... Personal finance and like immigration and growing up as a sort of person of color like very much intersect and and made personal finance top of mind for me. And in particular, uh, as I mentioned, like immigrants cannot uh, bring in their credit history, no matter how good it is, from abroad into the U.S. and Canada. Yeah, um, well, and
1: let's let's also qualify that too. Canadians can't bring into the U.S., right?
0: That's right. Um, like we're Canadian- I'm
1: an immigrant. <laughs> to the U.S. if I were to come over?
0: There, there are some asterisks there, which is like, if you are uh, if you are a, a customer of TD in Canada, I TD see. could be able to use your data in the U.S. Okay, um, so there's some exceptions. American Express. But, but it's only like very narrow cases where you have to use the same bank and you have to like, for example, like Scotiabank doesn't have a U.S. like presence. And so you can't use your Scotiabank account in the U.S. Yeah. And so mm. it's, it's a very like sort of patchwork set of solutions.
1: Yeah, but it, I mean, we're... We're not the ones that, that need the most help in this regard. I'm sure it's probably worse for countries that aren't in North America.
0: Yeah, but I mean, you know, ultimately, uh, as you mentioned, the problem is fundamentally the same. And so, mm. you know, it's that—that's actually a good example where, like, the credit bureaus in Canada are exactly the credit bureaus in the U.S. They have the
1: same names. They're the same.
0: <laughs> the financial institutions in Canada, like several of them, have. Presence in the U.S. and still Canadians face this issue, which shows like how ridiculous it is.
1: Yeah. So this is a, so Nova Credit, you. And who who was there uh, before you started?
0: Uh, the three founders. So uh, Misha Estapov, who is a, a son of Russian immigrants. Okay. Nikki Goulimis, who um, is a son of Gr- or is the daughter of Greek immigrants to the UK, and wow. who lived in the UK before going to graduate school in the US, and then Luke uh, Jansen, who is uh, a Dutch immigrant to the US and went to the US for graduate school. Yes,
1: yeah, so this is all close to home for everybody. That's right. Yeah, that's great, and so I mean, it, that's funny. I'm I'm sure that you're not allowed to hire based on this, or maybe you are. But is that is is that what, what is happening? Like, I mean, who who better to be in this company? Everybody should have something close to being an immigrant, right?
0: Right. We hire for passion, and sure. of course, <laughs> most. <passions are laughs> yeah, let's, veiled, we like, won't get into HR have... stuff, but yeah, no, I just I mean right. that would be great.
1: I in this this is the the situation where I'd be like screw HR rules. Let's let you know you should be able to hire who would be the best, right?
0: <laughs> right. So so we hire for people that care the most about the cause, and and what we found is obviously that has over-indexed on people. Of course, have either directly experienced this or like have like myself like close family members that have
1: exactly. So you're the 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 first employee, and uh, what like. Well, yeah. Maybe you could say what, what was the company about then? Is not it the same now? Is is it uh, the same mandate?
0: Yeah, exactly. And then I think we were a little bit more naive about about building this business. I thought I think back then we thought like, oh, we can just build this business. But now we realize why it hasn't been built yet because it's been very very difficult. Um, but that that gives us even greater sort of determination to solve the problem.
1: Yeah, you're pioneers. So, see, so yeah, just let's give a brief explanation as to to what uh, what you're doing at NOVA?
0: Yeah, so um, generally what NOVA does is we help uh, immigrants bring in their credit history from overseas into the US and Canada. So we partner with, uh, on one hand, bureaus and other sort of information sources uh, in countries overseas. Um, And then on the other hand, we partner with banks and property managers and um, anyone that uses credit to offer a product uh, to convince them, that the bureau data um, that we offer from overseas is is the same quality and structure as the data that they get in the U.S. and Canada. So what I do is I lead our Canadian business, um, and so you and I met uh, in Toronto at the at the Empire FinTech event. We did, and I was there because I am bringing this technology to uh, the banks in Canada.
1: That's awesome, and and there's only a few, a handful. Uh, That's right, <laughs> as opposed to the states, right? Right of course, this business exists because nobody talks to each other around the world. Banks, credit, it's all just silos everywhere.
0: That's right. And you know, what's particularly crazy is that um, several of the banks that we talk to in the US and Canada and globally have international subsidiaries. Um, So for example, Mm -hmm. they might have a subsidiary in Mexico or India where they get the same data that we get. Um, It's just that they don't, um, have any way to quickly transfer that data into the US. And so what we found is situations where we'll talk to one subsidiary of a bank to get the data um, into that country, and then another subsidiary of the bank to get the same data into another country, <laughs> even though they, they have the data themselves.
1: Man, who's building these these companies is so disconnected all over the place, eh?
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: What, what year was this then you joined then?
0: 20, uh, last year. So, so 2017 at the beginning of the last year.
1: So beginning, beginning of 2017. So we're almost, we're nearing the end of 2018. That seems crazy, right? Yeah. So is that, that would be, uh, two, almost two years then for you.
0: That's right. And the company was founded, uh, like two months before I joined two or three months before I joined.
1: Yeah. So, can you talk a little bit about uh, the progress that you've been making with this, and and uh, challenges or or not?
0: Yeah, totally. So we see our business on two sides. The the two that I mentioned. On one side. Uh, We call it the supply of data. Um, And then on the other side, we call it the demand for that data. So on the supply of data, what we do is we go to the leading bureaus in countries overseas and say, we'd like to work with you to bring your data into the US and Canada and hopefully... In the future globally. And so uh, we have a team that leads those discussions with the bureaus. That is a difficult set of discussions because the bureaus are obviously very careful about the data that they have overseas, um, especially in light of recent, you know, cyber attacks and breaches. Absolutely. Um, and so yeah. we work with those bureaus to make sure to convince them of the social opportunity, first of all, and then um, the commercial opportunity. And then finally, of the fact that we as a company, even though we're young, have our ducks in a row when it comes to our cybersecurity. Some of the difficulty is that first set of partnerships, which is the supply side of the equation. And then on the demand side of the equation, uh, which is the side of the business that I work on, we, as I mentioned, convince the banks to buy the data. So we we work across three verticals. The first is property management. So as I mentioned, my mom had to pay nine months of deposit. And um, Right now, what we're trying to do is convince landlords that, um, look, this person might not have U.S. or Canadian credit history, but they have credit history overseas, so there's no reason that you need to charge them nine months. You can charge them the same as you charge everyone, which is one month. The second vertical that we work in is financial institutions in the U.S., so U.S. banks uh, that want to issue credit cards to immigrants but currently cannot. And then the third vertical is one that I lead, which is our Canadian and ultimately international Vertical, where previously we could only send data from India to the U.S., and now what we want to be able to do is send data from India to Canada or India to U.K. or Singapore or
1: anywhere. I just want to step back to the rent situation uh, for a sec because I was gonna. I remember I was gonna ask you about this before. So the landlord needed nine months' rent deposit because they didn't have good credit, but then. Once they pay the landlord for many years, that record of payment does not go into any report, correct? There, is there no credit report for rent?
0: Yeah, that's right. There are some companies hoping to solve this problem by creating, um, instead of a creditworthiness assessment, a uh, rentworthiness assessment. Um, and some companies are trying to report it to the bureaus, but it is, it's not systematic in the sense that not everyone that pays rent has that data reported back to the bureaus.
1: Yeah, I know Duelo is doing that. I had uh, Chris Chan was on my first episode of the podcast. Oh, awesome! And uh, I was just wondering if if that is uh, part of your mandate as well. Are you thinking on the way of cha- of like changing the way credit is uh, looked at?
0: Right now, we are focused on bringing data from overseas to the U.S. and Canada. Sure. Um, but ultimately, what we do want to do is is basically get data from anywhere
1: yeah, yeah,
0: that helps to prove that someone can pay something on time and any type of data um, and bring it to anywhere. And so ultimately, yeah, I mean, different data sources from, for example, if, if you paid your rent on time in the Philippines every month, like we would love to be able to use that to convince a credit card company that you're going to pay your credit card payment on time every month. So something like that for sure is, is on the horizon.
1: Because doesn't it mean the same thing? Like I know the credit agencies were basically created by the banks. Am I wrong? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that they decided what metrics were important to them. But from your perspective and your analysis lately, like is it, is paying rent on time versus paying your you know credit card or your debts on time? Are they the same?
0: We haven't done the analysis, um, but anecdotally, I mean, yeah, people please. that pay their rent on time every month, like are very responsible. And so we'd love to, we'd love to like prove that out with data.
1: I'm all about anecdotes, so please. Uh, <laughs> but I know you. I know you have to say that so that you're not quoting the company information or anything. Um, but yeah, no, feel free to share those because I'm. I'm interested in your opinion based on your experience as well as the the data that you've collected.
0: Yeah, I mean, what we found, especially especially among um, low-income individuals and families, is that part of the reason that they stay low-income is because, despite the fact that they have really good record of paying, for example, their utility bills on time or their rent payments on time, that doesn't get reported. And so they keep having to get high interest loans and And that high interest loans means that they can't build their wealth, right? If we could find a way to report the regular payments that everyone's doing, but but don't get reported to the bureaus and use that for getting lower cost loans, like that is the holy grail.
1: Yeah, that sounds amazing. Anything that keeps people off the payday loans is a, a good thing for me. Right. <laughs> So uh, I guess I got a couple of questions. Why India, first of all? Why would you start with them?
0: When we were first starting the business, we did the analysis to show which countries are supplying the most immigrants to the U.S. And now we, we we include Canadian immigration flows in that analysis. Sure. And, and which immigrants are most likely to have credit history abroad, meaning like which ones were the most credit active in their home countries. And what we found was when you look at visa categories for people that are coming to the U.S. and Canada for, for jobs or, or coming to the U.S. and Canada on skilled visas, they tend to come from a handful of countries that comprise like 50% of the population. Among those is India, China, Mexico, the U.K., uh, South Korea for um, student uh, visas and Brazil for student visas, and so we really went after those countries and the credit bureaus in those countries to make sure that we could have the maximum impact in the shortest amount of time.
1: So that makes a lot of sense. So obviously India is at the top of that list, and so can you tell us a little bit about the experience with the dealing with? So you you you've already done this between India and the U.S. Then,
0: that's right. Um, so the integrations that that um, we have live or are currently working on are uh, India, Mexico, the UK, Australia, Nigeria, Brazil, South Korea. So we have integrations across all of the continents nice. um, and, and can currently serve almost 50% of the immigrants in, in the US and Canada.
1: And this is all behind the scenes. It's not like somebody needs to sign up for this, right?
0: Uh, that's right. Um, so we right now work directly with uh, the banks that would be the ones issuing the, the credit cards, for example, to the applicants. And when when the applicants apply for a credit card or when they are applying for an apartment lease, the bank or the landlord would say, oh, we have a partnership with Nova Credit. We can bring in your credit history overseas. And then the person says, oh, great, I have credit history in Brazil. Um, and then they go through the process to bring in that credit history into the US and Canada.
1: Okay. So they, they do have to sign off and pull the trigger on this. But like, should they go to a different bank if somebody doesn't say, ask this question?
0: Yeah. I mean, um, we are in a, pro- like, as you know, we're a pretty young company. Um, so we're in the process of working with all of the banks. <laughs> yeah. No,
1: I imagine you, you will, but you, you, you're you not there yet. Yeah.
0: Right? Yeah. But we're not there yet. That's right.
1: Yeah. So like, is there a list on on your website or something like that about like, you go to this bank?
0: We have a list of lenders that we work with. Yeah. On our website, but not all of the ones that we work with are are disclosed yet because we're in the sort of pilot stages with a lot of the customers.
1: Sure. Yeah. So like if somebody just came in to the States and they're in this uh, situation that your parents were in, is there a a step-by-step process they can go through or is it just still in in infancy? And And uh, we'll we'll get there.
0: Right now it's still in infancy because we're um, trying to figure out the sorts of banks and and property managers that are excited to work with us. Yeah. But ultimately we are planning on establishing some sort of like website or information portal um, that can help immigrants like go through that process.
1: That would be so, that would be so great. And of course, if if eventually, like you said, you'll be in everybody's uh, head Uh, In terms of the banks, then it'll just become part of the infrastructure. Is that kind of the golden uh, uh, target for everybody?
0: Yeah, that's right. And I mean, what we tell the banks, which is which is true, is that this is an enormous segment that that's currently not being served. So Absolutely. to put some numbers around that um, in the U.S., there are 47 million immigrants. And in Canada, there are 10 million immigrants that are likely to have credit history abroad. And in Canada, it's like 20 percent of the population. Yeah, that's um, a much higher
1: percentage of Canada than in the States.
0: That's right. And so imagine like across the US and Canada, that's, that's almost 60 million people that are that are not being served by the financial sector or by landlords or whatever. Um, and so in addition to having a big social impact, that's also a big commercial opportunity. Uh, and so that's our pitch.
1: Yeah, it's not because they don't have uh, money or the ability to pay debts as they become due or to pay things on time. It's because of a system that is old. Yep, that's right. Do you guys get frustrated like on a daily basis about that?
0: <laughs> I think the the best uh, tool in an entrepreneur's arsenal is hope and optimism. Yeah, yeah
1: absolutely.
0: <laughs> and so uh, you know this well from from starting up uh, your own sort of stuff from scratch, but yes. uh, it's easy to get frustrated. It's harder to stay optimistic.
1: <laughs> it, yeah, it is. It is, especially if, if anybody tells you that this particular process is easy or or, you know, no problem, or this is how I did it. I mean, you guys, uh, you don't even have, you really don't even have a a model for this because this is all brand new stuff.
0: Yeah, we are effectively creating infrastructure from scratch. Our ultimate end goal is creating what we call the credit passport. So in the same way that, you know, you can use your passport to bring your uh, non-financial identity to any country around the world, we want to create a credit passport so that you can bring your financial identity anywhere around the world. And when we get there, then that's when we'll be satisfied.
1: I love it, I love it, and 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 probably distant future uh it'll all be just integrated into one uh global identity right um, yeah, that's right that which would be awesome, you know like the oh the fragmentation of everything, I mean I guess that's the the your daily life. Is experiencing that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's really difficult to have bits and pieces of your core identity reside in multiple databases in multiple places. And and I think the holy grail is like not just a combined identity, but a combined identity that the consumer controls. And that's sort of where we're headed.
1: I guess the, the last thing that I, I would want to ask is like, why hasn't anyone done this before? And why uh, wouldn't a bank or a landlord want to do this? What are the negatives for
0: them? Yeah, that's a great question. The reason why it hasn't been done before is because it's really, really freaking hard to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think
1: we probably all figure that out by now, but I just wanted to see if there's any other right. reason.
0: What, what it requires is a an ease of operating across multiple different geographies, mm-hmm. across multiple different data formats, in multiple different uh, regulatory regimes, and it's, it's both a business problem, meaning that we have to convince people to work with us in addition to a technical problem, meaning that we have to um, standardize all the different data formats around the world. And so what it requires is is a team like ours that has a very strong social impact reason to solve this.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, good point. And,
0: and the reason why like the credit bureaus themselves haven't done it is because the credit bureaus like TransUnion and Equifax have global subsidiaries but they do not have subsidiaries in every single country and so even if they were to combine the data from all of their subsidiaries they would only be able to offer a partially global solution um, whereas what we do is we're a third party that sits in between all of the bureaus and and can work therefore with any of them and so that's why they haven't done it yet
1: yeah and and then why uh, why wouldn't anyone jump on the ship with you guys
0: I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's what I'm I think, thinking. Uh, I think really the, the key reason is that banks, not because they're bad or evil, but banks are just slow moving creatures. And um, you know each one has tens and hundreds of thousands of employees. And so making any big decision or change to how they do their core business today just takes a long time. And so we have to talk to a million different people at a bank before we can convince them to do it. The other piece is that what we need to do often is convince banks that you know the Indian data is as good or as useful as Canadian data or US data. And after they get across that intellectual hurdle, then usually they're on board with the size of the opportunity.
1: Are we coming back to the cultural biases here again too? Is that like, oh, Indian yeah, I data mean, can, is not as good as ours.
0: Yeah, I think that, that maybe plays a role in it. And in fact, what we found is the, the, the banks where we've had... The fastest conversations, or the ones that are most excited to work with us, um, are the ones that have you know chief risks officers or you know underwriters that themselves are immigrants, and they say, "Okay, yeah, we don't need to be convinced any further." Yeah, <laughs> um, that's great. So, yeah, it's, it's been an interesting finding.
1: <laughs> That'll probably become easier and easier as uh, hopefully as more immigrants and people of color and women are rising to the top of these organizations, and it's not just the old white guys, right?
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's like familiarity and and sort of empathy is is key here.
1: Yeah, do you do you feel like I mean, do we need a generational shift to move forward with a lot of these uh, things or can, you know, are there are there some allies uh, in the uh the existing generation uh, that will help kind of move this forward?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I hesitate to say that, that all we need to do is have like all the old cranky people die off. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of, that, that is what I kind of just said, yeah. <laughs> but ultimately, like, yeah, we, we have found really powerful allies in, in a lot of the banks, and, and we've been very heartened, especially in Canada, about the attention around our product and, and what they see as the business imperative to serve such a large and growing population. But ultimately, it is people being able to advocate for the rights and the benefit of others, unlike them, um, that yeah. have been, that's been really helpful.
1: Yeah. That, and that, that's pretty amazing. You know, you, you guys have a really great thing going on here and I'm really glad you're able to come on the show and talk about it, talk about your story and talk about, you know, where, like, how you're going to be making a difference and yeah, maybe, uh, you know, next, pre- next president or something. Right. <laughs>
0: We'll see. I'm, I'm happy with um, with Trudeau, maybe not so happy with the other one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Right. Let's uh, let's try to make some change across the board. But, I, you know, I feel like what you're doing now, it, I just like a lot of people are doing things like this in the different areas that they're in. And, and uh, I've had a, a good handful of them on the show because I love disruption. And I love progress and and uh, and change, and also shaking up existing systems that are based on really old and likely racist and sexist ideology. So this is uh, this is really good stuff.
0: Thank you. Uh, yeah, and, and I think ultimately, like the way innovation happens is is by asking the hard questions, like we've done of why is it like this? Ultimately, like you know, if, if you've been in an industry for twenty five. 35 years you you forget to ask why is it like this and and I think what's really exciting is that we just have a new crop of people that are both because of their naivete but also because of their optimism are, are asking like how can we change this this seems dumb and and so that's that's what I'm most excited about
1: yeah I think it's always a valid question and it doesn't mean that things always need to change all the time but if you ask it frequently then then sometimes the answer will be uh, I don't know why we should probably change this we just uh, didn't think about it until you, uh, you said something. And so let's keep uh, talking. Let's keep talking about it, right? For sure. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Nico. Hopefully I'll see you again uh, in the uh, Ontario and Toronto area. Uh, but, thank uh, you so much. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, have a good rest of your day.
0: Thank you. You as well. And thank you again for having me on the show.
1: If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave me a five-star rating or a review or both. If you're already a subscriber, you're awesome. Please join my Facebook group so that I can thank you personally and get to know my subscribers. To find the group, go to Facebook and search for The Personal Finance Show. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Personal Finance Show. I'll be back next week with personal finance expert Rubina Ahmed Haq.